was 24 years old, I'm now 56, and uh, I had uh, already had about 3,500 to 4,000 hours of flight experience under my belt by then. Um, and um, we were doing a training flight, a, um, a long flight, a 12, 13-hour flight for a military exercise that's held every year uh, called RIMPAC. That's the Rim of the Pacific is what they, uh, that's what it, the acronym means. And mm-hmm. it is a the largest military exercise in the world, and they do it every year. Um, so our crew was going out to do our part of that uh, exercise, and at that time I was in the P3 version that does submarine tracking and hunting subs. And so we had an airplane that had a history of chips lights, making chips lights on number one, that's C-H-I-P-S on number one engine, which is uh, a light that comes on to tell you that there's metal being made in the engine or the gearbox for the propeller. This is a turboprop, four-engine turboprop heavyweight aircraft, weighs about 70 tons. And um, right after takeoff at about 10,000 feet, uh, we had the chips light come on. So you don't know if it's just a little piece of fuzz uh, that brought the light on or if it's making chunks with part numbers on it. So you shut the engine down as a precautionary shutdown and declare an emergency and come back to land. And because we had just taken off, uh, we had a full load of fuel. So we literally had to dump about 12, uh, 13, 14,000 pounds of fuel, which is the most we could dump at that point out of Tank 5, <clears throat> and then fly around for another 45 minutes or so to get down to our max allowable land weight. You don't want to land too heavy or you're overstressed the structural integrity of the aircraft. Right. Uh, and possibly blow a main mount or something like that, blow a tire out. And uh, so we're coming in to land on runway four left, and because we're really heavy, much heavier than normal, so we had probably still had about forty to forty-two thousand pounds of fuel on board at that point. And you typically land after a flight with only eight thousand on board, so that's a big difference in weight. Mm. Uh, and you have to fly a lot faster on approach to stay in the air, or you'll stall and fall and crash. Mm. So you're coming in much faster than normal. Uh, and because we've declared an emergency, the fire trucks are sitting on the side of the runway, literally right beside the runway. They pre-position them so that as you go by, they can chase you down the runway and come in behind you in case something goes wrong. Well, when the main mounts touched down, we were landing on runway 040 left. That was the heading, 040. And it's parallel runways, so they had four right about, I don't know, however far away, but half a mile or so next to it. Uh, with some asphalt in between, but it's not stressed for a heavyweight aircraft uh, for that asphalt. It's not a runway, per se. Mm-hmm. And when we touched down, the main mounts came in. Everything seemed okay. It's a tricycle landing gear. Then the nose gear came down. We immediately departed the runway to the right. And we're probably doing well over 150, 160 miles an hour at that point. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah, so it happens really fast. <laughs> Everything happens very quickly at those speeds. And um, when that happened, the fire truck's sitting there, and our plane is headed to directly at the fire truck. And the right wingtip, we were so close to that fire truck, just the right wingtip, starboard wingtip, went over the top of the fire truck. The number four propeller, which is uh, on the right wing at the outboard engine, is... 13 feet in diameter from tip to tip, uh, 
returns at 1,020 rounds a minute, weighs 2,200 pounds, and we're moving at this fire truck at well over 150 miles an hour. And the propeller probably missed the fire truck by two or three feet at the most. <clears throat> wow. wow. It was, yeah. And so when that started <laughs> coming at me, I had this intense terror. There's no other way to describe it. It's just pure abstract terror. And I knew I was about to die. There's a difference between, I think I'm going to die, to going, I'm dead. There's a big mm. difference in that. It's the first time I've ever had to confront my own mortality and contemplate mm -hmm. that. <clears throat> and so I could see this guy on this water cannon on top of the fire truck uh, with a silver suit on, you know, the silver firefighter suit with a big clear square mask. I couldn't hear him but as we're because I'm inside the plane, but as we're going by, he's this wingtip's going over his is about to go over his head, and this plane's coming right at them, and I could see him screaming in terror at the top of his lungs through that clear mask on his face. Couldn't hear him, of course, mm. but I can mm -hmm. I remember seeing this big bulging vein sticking out of his forehead. He's screaming so hard, this vein is like bulging out. And I'll never forget the look on his face, and I remember thinking if. If he could see me, and did I look as terrified to him as he did to me, uh, and I'm thinking that's going to be my last conscious thought, and uh, and somehow we missed this fire truck, <clears throat> uh, by the grace of God, and now we're departing the runway at about a 30, 40 degree angle, something like that, headed across the asphalt between the two runways, and the co-pilot screams, well, he yelled first because the pilot's not doing anything. It was Lieutenant uh, Dan Duffy in the right seat and Lieutenant Mike Lovgren in the left seat who made the landing. And nobody in the flight station is over like 27 years old. We're all real young, you know. And mm -hmm. um, Lieutenant Duffy yells, get on the brakes. I mean, you can't really use the brakes at those speeds. You use reverse thrust, but he meant to stop with the engines. If you use the brakes, you'll blow the main mouth out at those speeds. So he meant get on the brakes, meaning stop the plane. He yelled it a second time, get on the brakes, a little louder. And then he yells, you better get on the effing brakes. <laughs> that kind of that brought Lieutenant Lovgren around because he was in shock, I think, just kind of going along for the ride when he's supposed to be controlling the airplane. And, oh, uh, and so he kind of jerked him back around, and uh, he jams into reverse thrust. That threw all this dust and trash up in the air because we're not on the runway, so there's debris out there. And and I, at when I, at the moment when I thought I was going to hit the fire truck, I started experiencing <clears throat> numerous different perspectives of my of what was going on. Not just from my body sitting in the seat, looking out the windows, and experiencing my that experience from my own personal perspective as the flight engineer. Uh, I also was outside the airplane somehow, and I could see all the debris. I r could tell when the fire trucks turned around and started chasing us as we were going across the asphalt. Uh, I saw every tiny detail, and it, ex it was like, and there was this extreme distortion of time. It was like one second took a minute to felt like it took a minute or longer to occur. Imagine if you had a one-second event and you had a minute or more to observe it. I mean, how much can you discern at that point? Right, right? how much detail you would exactly. you'd be able to see. 
but it was more than just that. I was literally in the middle of the debris viewing it all. I saw a Pepsi can. This all happened at the same time. A Pepsi can that had been out there somewhere got blown up by the reverse thrust of the propellers and went from left to right across the windshield of the, of the flight station of the uh, airplane. Uh, probably took a split second, but I'm watching this thing tumble. I can read Pepsi. I mean, I knew it was a Pepsi can. I could see it. I could read it. Mm -hmm. I saw the debris, the uh, moisture, brown fluid. I don't know if it was Pepsi fluid or just dirty water but coming out. And as the prop thrust hit the little droplets, they atomized. I could see every bit of detail of that. And then I know, I know, I don't know how I know this, but I know the can went down, uh, dropped down after it went past the windshield, went under the number three propeller and went right between the two wheels of the main mount on the starboard wing and never got crushed. Mm. I know that. I don't know how I know that, but I did. <laughs> well, it sounds like an out-of-body experience to me it that was, you were outside yeah. the plane. It, and, but that was the first time I'd ever, well, it's the only time it's ever happened to me, but um, in an extreme situation like that. And um, so it was very confusing. And then we went all the way across the asphalt and ended up half on, half off the other runway after barely missing a arresting gear device, which is used to stop fighter jets when they grab the cable with the tail hook to stimulate carrier landings on a land-based field. Mm -hmm. And so that was the second time I thought I was about to die because the last thing I saw was that thing looming up at us when we went into reverse thrust and all this dirt obscured vision and we couldn't see anything. It was like being trying to land in snow. I uh, just threw it all up and obscured our vision completely. And so... We literally ended up half on, half off runway four right, and we're sitting there. Uh, and I come off my adrenaline rush, and I felt like I just ran three marathons back to back. I was just completely wiped out. I was—I don't ever remember feeling that kind of exhaustion ever in my life. And uh, I look to the right, and I see Mister Duffy slump as he comes off of his. And I'm hearing this sound to my left as I'm looking at Mr. Duffy. It sounds like this. Woo, woo. I'm like, what, what is that? And I turn to look to the left, and here's Lieutenant Lovgren still white-knuckling the yokes. And we're not moving. We've come to a stop. But he's not really talking to anybody. He's just kind of talking out loud. He's still in shock. And mm -hmm. he finally goes, woo, woo. What the did I do wrong? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then after the fire truck showed up, we figured out everything was nothing was wrong with the plane, and we literally added power and rolled out on four right runway four right. So I started a landing on runway four left in a four engine heavyweight seventy ton airplane, and used an entirely different runway to finish the landing with. I used two land runways for one approach and one landing, and I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was confusing to me, that, that, that experience. I didn't tell anybody about it because I didn't understand what happened. Uh, and the next day, the skipper took us back out and put us back in the saddle type thing, right? They wouldn't mm -hmm. do that today, but back then, they that's what they did. Today, you probably get some psychological testing and stuff like that for PTSD before they uh, put you back in the plane. But it was a different world back in 1981. And yes. um, so oh, I didn't think anything about it. You know, I already had 
thousands of hours of flight time. So I did the pre-flight. We took off, and I'm coming back around for the first approach, and I started panicking. That PTSD hit me, and I didn't even consider that. I didn't even know about it. You know, it just never crossed my mind that I'd have a problem. And so I've got the skipper literally sitting a foot and a half from me, and I can't let him know that I'm freaking out or I'll probably never get to fly again. And so mm-hmm. rather than sit up and look out the window like I usually do and then bend over and shove the power levers if I needed to for a wave off, I bent over and kept my head in the uh, looking directly at the engine gauges and my hands on the power levers, not because I I did that so that the, it would look to the skipper like I knew what I was doing, but my head was not in the game because I was terrified again. Mm-hmm. So I made it through that. You know, I couldn't exactly say, Skipper, I want to bail out now. Can I, you know, I'm committed. I'm in the air, so you have to get on the ground. I had to talk myself through that. And after a few landings, everything was okay, and I got through it. Uh, then the next day, I watched a television show. I know this all seems, sounds not connected, but I think it all is related. So that was a Monday when the incident happened. Tuesday was the refly. Wednesday evening... Um, with my wife, and I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old son at the time. He's now in his 35 years old. And um, we're watching a TV show called That's Incredible. And I saw this woman telling her story on television about her son. His name was Leslie. I still remember his name for some reason. And she said she had had a dream where her Uh, She couldn't have children, and she's in her 40s, early 40s, and she wanted to have a child. She's praying about it. And God had come to her in her her dream and told her, soon you're going to be offered an infant for three babies for adoption, and you're to take the infant boy that's blind. And literally within a year, that's what happened to her. Mm. So as he grew up, Leslie grew up, it became apparent he had no cognitive skills beyond that of a one-day-old infant his whole life. He was had the mind of a newborn. So he literally, he's now 26 or 7 years old when they, when they have him on the show. And he's like a 200-pound, 27-year-old infant. And they brought him on stage. Uh, and the reason they had them on there was because she said when she went to sleep that night, uh, one night, um, she woke up in the middle of the night and heard music downstairs and she thought somebody had left the radio or TV on and she gets up to go downstairs and turn it off and there's Leslie who's never spoken a word in his life never even responded to his name is playing the piano and singing the song Amazing Grace with tears going down his eyes so then they introduced him brought him on stage and she's literally dabbing drool off his chin like an infant you know while he's sitting Mm -hmm. there they're trying to talk to him but you could tell there's nobody home between the ears and then they put him in front of a piano, and he sang. And I call. I was moved by that. I, I, I felt that I was seeing my first miracle. I, at, at my age now and everything I've learned since, I now understand, you know, everything around me is a miracle, that life itself is a miracle. But at 24, you're not mature enough or old enough to really think all that through. And So I'm thinking I'd seen my first miracle. And then... Um, that night, I said a simple prayer, laying in bed. I wasn't even on my knees or saying it out loud. It was all in my head. Uh, just a prayer of genuine gratitude. I said, you know, the, of being grateful for seeing my first miracle and that I was grateful for being alive and surviving the incident a few days before, two days before. And then I said, and this is in my head. I didn't even speak it out loud. 
I said, and Lord, it would be nice if you could do something like that for me someday. Not expecting anything. I mean, why would you, right? Yes. The next, next, sometime in the middle of the night, I don't know, three, four in the morning, I don't know when it was, um, all of a sudden, I didn't go through a tunnel like some people talk about or anything like that. It was just this instantaneous transition, and I was staring at the light of God right in front of me, blasting away with just immense uh, emotional waves of energetic, unconditional love. Now, I say that for a reason, uh, because I grew up in East Texas in a Southern Baptist uh, religion where you're going to burn in hell if you don't believe this way and that kind of thing. And I want to be very careful to say that I don't want to offend anyone uh, with their religious beliefs. Uh, I'm just trying to explain my experience and how I had to try and understand everything. Of course. But when that, when I had that experience and the love was so profoundly unconditional, you know, later on I had to look at that and say, you know, this doesn't fit with the story I was told. Uh, before and so I've done a lot of growth since then and learned a lot of things but and my belief systems completely changed um, however when I was staring at this light it was this um, first of all let me explain there's no human words I can use to aptly describe the feelings the, the, the things I was seeing the emotions none of it I, there's no human words to describe this but it was this bright, soft white light that was brighter than a billion suns with this crystalline blue in the middle that was like the, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked in a really high-quality diamond, you see that blue glint down inside of it, that really mm-hmm. light blue that was that was in the dead center of it. And there were these, and I didn't learn what these were until about a year and a half ago. Uh, they're called mandalas. But there were these... They were more than three-dimensional. I say they were like four-dimensional shapes. I can't even explain that either. But they were there were these geometric shapes that kept shifting and changing rapidly. And it would make the shape just long enough for me to see it, but not long enough to study it. And it was constantly changing, just over and over and over again. Uh, and then they had the white around that. And then spreading out in all directions from this light was, were these incredibly beautiful golden streams and spires of like gigantic icicles that were moving and getting shorter and longer and uh, and coming off of that were all these waves of energy of unconditional love and I instantly knew I was in the presence of my creator I knew I was standing in the presence of God I knew that and I had this feeling of being at home I was home there was this the environment itself was screaming at me that I was home, and I knew it. Um, I was just in dumb, dumbfounded, awestruck, uh, flabbergasted mode. You know, I mean, I just all I could do is that out of just out of sheer awe, as I'm looking at the light, I remember, I don't know if I said it with my mouth or with my mind. I, I don't know if I was still in my body. I don't know any of that. I was just overwhelmed with what was going on. And all I could do was experience it and, and look at it and feel it. And 
I said, oh, my goodness, just when you say something in awe, you go, oh, my goodness, one of those things, you know. And the instant I said the word goodness, I recognized that goodness isn't just a word. It's a real, tangible experience with its own energy level, its own frequency, whatever you want to call it. But it was plowing through me the instant I said it. Uh, and it was part of me. It was it, it, it was part of me. I, I can't even explain that either. Mm-hmm. Um and when that happened, <clears throat> I suddenly recognized this hierarchical aspect of things going on, that unconditional love was by far the most powerful. And there was this power I could feel, this benevolent power, which was as equal in benevolence as it was in love, uh, coming from the love and from the light. I don't know how to explain all that either, but... The, uh, it was overwhelming, but there was the love, goodness, joy, bliss, ecstasy. All of a sudden, all of these things are blasting through me at an intense, in an, an intense, extreme level. All of them were off the charts, and I'm being overwhelmed. I thought I was going to explode with all of this energy and feelings and emotions. And um, um, at one point, I had what I call the urge to merge with the light. I sat up when my soul or my heart, I call it my heart, felt like I was going to go be in the light forever. I mean, I had a wife next to me in bed. I had a two and a half year old son in the next room and I didn't even consider them. Uh, couldn't. It's not, I know that sounds terrible, but that, the thing is, it's so overwhelming. There's nothing else you can even think about or experience it just takes you over yes. and um so <sighs> losing track of my where i was with the uh i'm being overwhelmed with all the light uh the joy bliss ecstasy the the love was off the charts and um oh as i started feeling like i was about to i wanted to merge with the light this is how i know it wasn't a dream okay I sat up in the bed as my soul was getting ready to go, and I opened my eyes. And I'm looking at the foot of the bed, at the wall, at the across the room, and this whole, make about a 10-foot circle of the wall, ceiling, and part of the floor, and part of the ceiling, is the same lights in my bedroom. The whole room's lit up. I mean, it's a billion suns in my bedroom, and I've got God in my bedroom, and I'm like... <laughs> I, I'm staring at this with my real eyes, and this lasted for several seconds, three, four, or five seconds, something like that, enough that I knew I'm sitting in my bedroom and this is real. Um, and by, by the way, this, these experiences were the most real things that's ever happened to me. This, this place of reality that I was in, this different dimension, was way more real than this place. I don't, I don't even know how to explain that, but it's my true home. I do know that. Um, and so I watched the big circle of, of the, that it made in the hole in the wall, kind of like a hole in the wall as it's coming through, shrink down from the outer edges down to the center and on the wall as it went away, concentrically shrink down and disappear. And I'm sitting there in the bed for the next couple of hours until the, as the sun gradually came up, and I'm crying the whole night, the rest of the night, just sitting there staring at the wall, watching this uh, 
residual spiritual energy, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. It's this undulating through the wall where it had penetrated the wall before. And it was, and as the sun came up, it gradually faded away. Um, and then that following Sunday at 24 years old, you know, I'm thinking, because back then we didn't have the internet or cell phones or any of that stuff. And there were a few books out about near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences and that kind of thing. But if you didn't know about them or know where to go to get them, you don't have you didn't have that instantaneous access to information like we have today. So I kind of was on my own. But I went to the church on Sunday thinking that's where I was going to get my answer on what to do next. What was I supposed to do? That's what I wanted to know. You know, why did that happen? What am I supposed to do now? And uh, what do I do with this? Um, and I explained everything to a guest pastor at the Waianae Baptist Church on the western end of the island where we were living, of Oahu, and uh, our regular pastor was away on vacation, so they had this guy there from the mainland for that particular weekend, and he kind of looked at me, he listened to me, and uh, it was about two years before I could tell this story without crying every time I tried to tell it, because you get, get overwhelmed with these the experience itself. It just floods back like a flashback or something. I don't know. Yes. Um, but he he just kind of looked at me. He tilted his head and gave me an odd look and turned his back and walked away. He didn't say a word. Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah, I was kind of stunned because uh, I was at a very vulnerable moment in my life. I mean, I needed some help. And I, I thought that I could get the answer from the church, but I didn't know what I know today. And... Uh, and I now understand that, you know, he had no answer. He had no answer. How, how could he? He just taught, he's learned what he was taught uh, in, in whatever schools and seminaries or things that he had gone to, and that was his belief system. So I think I kind of shook his you world were... <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yes, and, you were uh, challenging what he'd been, uh, he'd learned to believe all his life. So Yeah, his paradigm uh, of thinking was not... Uh, was being uh, challenged big time. Uh, as, oh, and I, overwhelmed, and he, he, overwhelmed, I would say, if he just turned and walked away. Yeah, I mean, he, he I can't imagine someone doing that, especially someone, you know, in the church with the opportunity to learn so much about God. Why would you turn your back and walk away? I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to ask <laughs> him one day, but I have no idea who he is or where he went or anything like that. But I have a feeling that He'll never forget me, um, <laughs> and I don't mean that in an arrogant sense because that's not my nature at all. And so, I spent the next uh, thirty plus years trying to understand what happened to me, and uh, I've learned a lot. Um, I now believe that uh, what we are all doing are—I think because I was in the light. Oh, here's the other thing I was going to say. <clears throat> As an engineer, I have the mind of an engineer. I need to understand how everything works. That's just my nature. And I will dig deep and deep and deep, as deep as I need to go until I get a satisfactory answer that provides me with a level of truth that I think is real. And and I don't stop till I get the get where I need to be. <clears throat> I just never stop digging. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so I not only I say the first thing I need to do, if I'm going to give the Bible so much power over my life uh, back then, I said I should at least 
understand how it was put together, who wrote it, and all that. So I learned all about Christianity on a historic level and how it all came about. Then I started looking at all the other uh, religions. So I looked at Sufism, Zoroasterism, Buddhism, uh, read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I've read hundreds of books, uh, learned, and then I, I realized that all these different religions have some similar spiritual principles, but they also all have their own particular agenda. And so I've come to the belief, this is my personal truth and belief, that religion is man-made, uh, and religion is man's attempt to make God in man's image, not the other way around. And I don't <laughs> Tony, uh, sadly, we are out of time here on NDE Radio, but um, I understand you spoke at the Edgar Casey Museum yeah, um, last August to the yeah to the Virginia Beach Ians, and that you have a DVD that could be made available if somebody wanted to hear the the full experience. How would they get in touch with you? Um, well, I uh, I'm sending you a copy, and I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a website he's going to post it on. Um, okay, we can Jason. we can put it up there. Yeah, and so, so uh, I'd like to have it posted there so that anybody can access it. Very good. Tony Woody, thank you so much for uh, sharing your experience with us. I'm sorry uh, we're out of time, but um, if anyone out there would like to listen to the show again, they can just by going to our website and uh, it, where uh, the show will be archived. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Tony, and thanks for listening. Um, check out the IANS website at IANDS.org. We'll be back next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern for more NDE Radio. Thanks for listening.